electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Could a rally in stocks be just getting started? That is what one market watcher is suggesting today even as the markets remain volatile. We'll take it to the Investment Committee for the great debate. Joining me for the hour today, Jenny Harrington, Rob Seachin, Josh Brown, and Pete Najarian. He's the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. And it's 12 noon in the East, and we go to the wall and see where the markets are trading right now. A day when the latest read on inflation shows a 40-year high. Yields are up today. There's 2% on the 10-year. Stocks are lower. The Dow's down by about 380. That comment, though, Pete, Mark Newton, he's Fundstrat's chief technician. He says the rally could just be getting started. You, however, are buying a bunch of puts. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I have been. Well, Scott, you know, it's it's interesting when you really look at what's going on within the markets right now. it, it, It is incredible. And I think that people lost sight of one thing about yesterday's great rally. And it was a great rally, 600 points, 650 points to the upside. But all of a sudden, they completely seem to have forgot what happened on the previous two days where we were down 900 points on the Dow. So, you know, it's an interesting time for sure. We do have volatility. We've consistently been closing over that 30 level now, it seems like, for multiple sessions, no doubt about that. And it's, it's an interesting trade right now. But we continue to see the downside perspective in terms of what are we seeing with the option world. We are seeing ETFs generally across the board where we are seeing large put buying. Now, why would they be doing that if they're looking for any kind of an upside to continue? And by the way, we have Tony Dwyer down here with us, and he was just talking about the fact that when you look at what's going on in the market, when you have a move like we had yesterday, oftentimes in a very short period of time, you're going to go back and pull back and maybe even start approaching testing some of the lows once again. So I think all of that being in perspective and seeing what's going on in the options world, the derivatives world right now, we are seeing incredible amounts of put buying on many of the ETFs, many of those that are not exposed necessarily just U.S. I'm talking about Europe and I'm talking about globally outside of the U.S. when you look at something like the EFA. We have seen monstrous buying in there, Scott. And when I say monstrous, 72,000, 66,000, 67,000, putting, buying puts, looking for more downside. They've been right early on. They weren't right yesterday, but they're certainly looking pretty good again today. I mean, you know, look, the, the, the European perspective of stocks and the emerging market perspective can be too entirely different things from the way that people view what's taking sure. place in, in the U.S. market. Now, Josh Brown, M- Mark Newton, who I mentioned, is also quite sanguine about where we are. It's not like he's a raging bull, even as he suggests that this rally could be, in his words, just getting started. Make no mistake, he says, this remains a bounce within an existing downtrend and momentum remains negative on most time frames. So it's not like he's sounding the alarm to go all in and buy stocks, though, as you proved yesterday with your new buy of Moderna, there are selective opportunities that present themselves to you because a lot of stocks have come down a lot. Yeah, it's a good point, Scott. And 
historically not all stocks bottom at the same time. So you could have an index-wide ongoing bear market, which I've been calling this uh, exactly that for weeks and weeks and weeks now. But you could have stocks that started selling off six months before the broader market and have run out of sellers or have gotten to levels that are so extremely pessimistic that it almost doesn't matter if they fall another 10% because the snapback, they could be up 25% before you even have time to put your tie on. So you can do little things here and there on the long side, but to the people who are looking for this elusive bottom day after day, week after week, and getting themselves all gassed up by days like yesterday where it's the biggest update for the NASDAQ since June and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the, that, those are counter trend moves. Like how many times can Lucy pull the football away and you land on your ass before you realize, oh, this is not really working. Maybe I should stop doing this. Maybe I should stop getting all bowled up every green day or every time Nvidia is up 7% on the day. Maybe I should realize those aren't the beginning of something new. They're just a head fake that is continuing to remove money from traders' accounts. So that's the environment that we're in. I have companies with great news. I know we're going to talk about this later. Um, Amazon doing a, a buyback for the first time, doing a, a split, um, maybe as a prelude to getting into the Dow. CrowdStrike smoking their earnings report. I won't say more on that. Those stocks are up. They're having a nice day. I don't believe that these gains are going to last. I'm not saying, oh, yeah, the coast is clear. We know their results are good. The results aren't the problem. The problem is technicals and the sentiment out there. The selling continues. So use days like yesterday, and I think like last Friday, use those as days to remove exposure to areas that are causing you pain, and that way you could stick it out and you can make it through this period of time. It's not over yet. Rallies are counter trend. The real trend is lower. I don't know for how much longer that will go on. I just know that that is the situation that we're in, and you have to comport yourself accordingly. Stop getting gas. So keep an eye on 42.50, according to Newton. That's what he thinks is a good sign um, and can likely help the trend extend. Movement back under 42.50, the trend turns back to negative. So you're, you're under that right now. Uh, obviously. So you're giving some back today what you gained yesterday. Jenny, you know, look, to Josh's point and the other side of the coin is we may be in a downtrend. The football keeps getting pulled as you go to kick it. At some point, though, the football stays and you actually kick it through the uprights. It's just hard to kind of time when exactly that is going to be. And you have to technically break the trend that, that you've been in. You're sitting in a fair amount of cash, maybe normal for you, but you're more negative than anybody that I've heard in the investment committee in recent weeks. So I am negative and I'm kind of big picture macro negative. But as I've also said, I'm long-term bullish on stocks. I always will be. And I love these environments because opportunities constantly created. So the last time I bought before two and a half, two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, the last time I bought was November of 2021. Then two and a half weeks ago, I was able to add 3M and Foot Locker. And I think that's the kind of market we're in. That doesn't mean that I need to be positive. We're not. We're in a really, really tough environment. Um, but I think two things as a long-term investor. One, it is not my job to try to avoid every pullback. It is not my job to 
get everybody out before a recession or get everybody out through a bear market. We're not going to get that right. So what's our job? Our job is to be positioned well, to be stable, to have a decent portfolio that works on the other end of this, to create a portfolio that has some resilience to this kind of pullback. And that's what I've done with the dividend strategy is create a portfolio where even though it's ugly and messy out there and I can be negative from a big picture macro perspective, guess what? Clients are fine. Income in the portfolio is completely consistent. I can always say to my clients, the income that you are expecting, that's going to be there. Who knows if the share prices are going to be up or down, but the income you're expecting is going to be there. So I don't want my negativity on the market and the economy, which is totally legitimate because we're in a tightening cycle. We have a horrible situation going on in Europe Mm -hmm. that we don't know how it's going to flesh out, but that doesn't need to create a negative posture in my portfolio. And yeah, so I have a little bit more cash than I usually do, but it's not a bear statement. All it's saying is I'm not matching my sales directly with my buys right now because patience is patience is what I've got and, I, right. and it pays off. Fair enough. This is the kind of market fair where you enough. Just everybody, wait. everybody's got you their let own. It come to you. Everybody's got their own view and their own strategy. I mean, fair enough. <laughs> what are you going to do, Rob Seachin, uh, You're a buyer, and look. Yesterday, I felt like we had a flurry of activity, the likes of which on this show, in terms of. A lot of people doing a lot of different things in the market and putting more money to work than not. And you sort of extend that trend of buying across the board, you suggest, not maybe a a raging bull, but nonetheless, if you're buying across the board, that suggests to me that you're growing a little more constructive on the arena that we're playing in. Mm -hmm. I'd say I'm constructive if our central thesis holds, Scott, and that central thesis is that the economic trajectory is so, so powerful, so, so strong, and rates are still relatively low that it still forces people into risk assets over time. I think, you know, when you look out in the in the very short run, it's obviously all about the war. and anything can happen, right? Uh, especially with what's going on in commodity prices, the pressure that that exerts, the derivative consequences that could happen. So, you know, I'm not going to be one that tries to guess the playbook of Putin. Um, I think that creates volatility, and volatility does create selective opportunities. So, what I said was this for clients that are invested, we like what we own, we're going to hold through it, much in the same way that much in the same way that Jenny's talking about, but recognize when you're in the wealth management business, you get clients that come in with new cash all the time. And uh, we're putting some of that cash to work uh, selectively. I think given our central view, you don't have to guess is what to do. If you look at yesterday, that's your playbook if we have a resolution of the, of the war. The longer the war persists, though, I think the probabilities of a recession increase. And in that case, we're watching PMIs, we're watching everything that you can watch to see if there's going to be, you know, kind of a pivot towards a recession. And the probabilities that have certainly gone up, and if there is a recession, I would say all bets are off. I think fair value on the S&P is probably 18 times, which is in a stone's throw of where we are right now in our base case scenario. Recession scenario, I think you see this market go down to 3,200 on the S&P, which is which is obviously really ugly. Um, 18 times it, doesn't it, 18 times doesn't sound you know uh, that that crazy. The the problem is 18 times of what? It's yeah. the greatest variable yeah, think, in the market right now. Correct. Whether earnings right. hold up to what expectations are, or they come in and that changes the equation. It's the beginning, middle, end of the story. Is what earnings end up being, Rob? And frankly. Nobody knows how they're going to hold up in the face of what we're witnessing, not only 
halfway around the world. Um, but from the Fed standpoint, when the Fed embarks on this new regime of interest rate hikes, which start less than a week from today, uh, it's going to be a brave new world for corporate America. You know, you, you, you know, I think I think one of the things here that's worth saying is that the Fed didn't think that it would have to begin its rate hike cycle into a massive geopolitical event. For sure. Now, of course, they didn't think that. But that's the problem with delaying as long as they did. So in late 2020 and early 2021, when they were talking about, we're not worried about the upside on inflation, we're going to let it run hot, we're going to, you know, communicating and signaling to the market that they're going to be more tolerant of inflation than they had been historically. Now, some of that made sense, right? Like, why do you want to stop an expansion in its tracks by tightening too soon? But some of that was silliness. There was like a social justice aspect to it where certain like certain groups didn't get jobs until later in the cycle. So maybe like for the sake of um, for the sake of certain social causes, we're going to let inflation run. There was some craziness in the air. Now, I understand it because we were coming out of a period of time where you had like people trapped in their houses and just furious about the way the system works and pointing fingers at, at the Fed for causing sure, we don't gender need to bias and there was right. all we kinds of stuff. We don't need to relitigate right, the whole reason so, why the Fed stayed too easy for too long. But that's the danger. No, 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 but that's the danger. But that's, that's the danger of asking the Fed to address things that are outside of its historic purview. The Fed has no ability to fix income inequality. In fact, almost everything it does makes it worse. So what the Fed was trying to do I think, especially with Biden coming in and a new administration, I think they were trying to uh, take their hammer and look at certain things as though they were nails. They're not nails. And that's why we had scorching hot numbers in the housing market. 20% increase in home prices year over year, hey, Josh, which should never happen. Let me, let me and, and they let me, just wouldn't move. I'm going to interrupt you because I want to take a look at shares of uh, both J.D., and uh, JD.com and, and Alibaba. And you, you may notice that a number of China-related stocks are tanking this hour. Our own David Faber uh, tweeted uh, a few things a few moments ago, which seem to get to the heart of what we're witnessing. Um, David, what can you add to the reason why these stocks are down in the magnitude? Wow, look, it, I mean, yeah. it, it, what, do you, what, yeah. do, what, what do we know? You know, uh, as, as you might imagine, it's, we started to see these declines, I'd call it around 1030 or so, Scott. And the best we can do is come up with uh, a, something that was expected in a sense of the process that's been underway. Everybody remembers, of course, when the SEC kind of told us, hey, over a three year period, we may start to delist certain Chinese companies, certain uh, or and or actually others as well. But it, it typically was focused on Chinese registrants that aren't disclosing what we want, uh, that, uh, you know, aren't uh, disclosing their relations to the Chinese government and how much control and influence over those companies the Chinese government has that uh, we don't feel as though as well are. Um, uh, the audit firms in 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 Hunk in in uh, China or HK that we don't have access to their uh, audit inspection, uh, and so that process has begun. And in fact, that process began because we actually got annual reports from the five companies that you you just saw. We can show you right now, uh, including Yum China. So they're the first out of the box to begin this three-year delisting process, which, by the way, they can cure should they comply effectively. And again, we've got a long time here, so not new, but Scott, I don't have to tell you, there's a great deal of nervousness in this market overall right now. 
And, you know, you look at the sanctions regime that is being that's been put in place on Russia. And as hard as it might ever be to imagine something even close to similar in terms of China, we do know that we don't have the best relationship right now. And so I think this is just magnifying concerns to a certain extent of market participants who are seeing these first five names. There are more to come. Uh, there's no doubt. Um, these five names, again, they reported results. They generated annual reports. And so that's the first of this sort of stated three-year delisting exit procedure. Uh, but you're going to see more. And right now it's affecting, as you pointed out, JD.com, which did report numbers. But this does not appear to be based on the financial performance of JD. It does appear specific to concerns in the market about this process beginning for Chinese listed ADRs that may be delisted. Now, by the way, a lot of them plan to list if they haven't already in Hong Kong or in other Chinese markets. And perhaps even if they're faced with this, transfer that listing, so to speak. But that obviously is a lot of dislocation as well, Scott. So that's the best we can come up with so far as to why there's so much uh uh, so many uh, losses here on the part of these companies. And by the way, when we look at uh, BABA, I always think of SoftBank, which you saw is up, but they own 25% of, of BABA as well, which has had incredible, uh, you know, poor, incredibly poor performance now for some period of time, not due to this, but so many other uh, factors as well, specific to the Chinese market. Yeah, I appreciate your insight very much, uh, David. Saw the tweet, wanted, to, wanted you to pop on. I mean, these stocks uh, are moving in such a dramatic manner uh, that's David Faber joining us there. Josh Brown, um, you used to own the K-Web. I mean, this just underscores yeah. uh, everything that David said just now, underscores even if this process is reversible at some point, uh, potentially, why as an investor do you want to assume that level of risk for a process, process that almost seems like a formality at this point? It just seems like offsides is a place you, you don't want to be as it relates to this issue, Josh. Yeah. The the, you're right, Scott. The VIE structure and just this idea that you have uh, a ticker symbol and you've got something that's trading on a U.S. exchange, but it's not actually a share in a company. It's representative of a share in a company. And then take it a step further. There's an ETF that's collecting all of these. It was clever and it did make a lot of sense for U.S. investors, especially in that period of time where China was growing fast in the United States and Chinese Internet was exploding. And if you owned these entities, if you own shares in these entities, you caught that upside. It was like a superior way to do it as opposed to trying to transact, uh, you know, on, a, on, a, on an exchange in Hong Kong or even worse, trying to get access to, to red chips or transact in Shanghai, which, of course, you couldn't do as a non-institution, as a U.S. investor. So it did make sense. It makes less sense now given that all of this stuff is up for further scrutiny. Um, and I think that's reflected in, in the action in the stocks. It has not yet been reflected in flows. It's really interesting that K-Web has gotten tons of inbound flows over the last few months, even as the volatility has been what it's been. So I don't know where this ends, but I will tell you that China has anticipated it. They have asked their companies to come back and list themselves in Hong Kong. These companies will find market cap in Hong Kong. That won't be a problem for them. JD, Baba, uh, Diddy, which tried to list here, didn't work out so well last year. All of those companies will have a home and a place to trade. Yeah. It just won't be U.S. retail investors who are doing the trade. I mean, Pete, you, you made it clear over the last many months, once this story started to really bubble up uh, above the surface yeah. and certainly take on a life of its own in the way a lot of these stocks 
had gotten destroyed. I mean, there were moments where you were willing to play these from an option standpoint. And I remember you even saying, you know, you had some calls at certain points in the news cycle on this mm -hmm. in, in different names. You weren't willing to be an investor, yep. but were willing to play the game nope. as a trader. This is another sort of yep. a wake up call is that that's no easy game either. Right. Well, the, the, the biggest difficulty is the people that unfortunately, and it happened to me, but the people who are on the stock side of it, Scott, that's a really dangerous side to be on. At least with the options, you know exactly what your risk is. If you buy 10 calls that cost a dollar, you've put $1,000 into a trade. I mean, we know exactly what you can lose on that trade. When you're buying stocks, well, you could lose if it goes all the way to zero, but whatever it is, you have far more of a downside perspective. So that's why I've stayed away from being in the stocks. I continue to stay away from being in those stocks. I look at that EFA. Now they've got Asian exposure along with Europe, as long as Australia, all of that. So basically a global exposure. And that's part of why, you know, when I see those options come in with the size that we've seen, Scott, and you say, hey, Pete, you're in puts, you're usually not in this many puts. That's part of the reason as well, because there are parts of the world where we are seeing it start to really disintegrate to the downside in terms of what we're seeing. And I think EFA is one of those that gives us a little bit of a, a picture of that and, and the amount of buying. We've had five separate times where we've been hit just in the last two weeks, all looking for downside. And if you take a look at the chart of that, you'll see exactly where that stock was a year ago, where it was a month ago, and where it is today. It continues to test those lows, it seems like, on a fairly regular basis. And it doesn't feel like they're done yet, Scott. As a matter of fact, they've gone out in time a little bit with some of these trades going out to May, giving themselves a little bit more time to see how this can play out. Okay. So, Certainly there are parts of the market. And by the way, I've got an unusual later, I will tell you, right. that might be tied into this whole thing as well. All right, I'm glad you, I'm glad you teed that up and, and at least uh, teased it. We will get to <laughs> that. Uh, we still need to talk about yep. <clears throat> Amazon and the big split of the stock. I can't wait to get everybody's opinion on that. Um, our next guest, he knows a thing or two about a stock split, a reverse one at that. GE, the Investor Day is going on. Morgan Brennan joins us now with Larry Culp. He is GE's CEO. It's a first on CNBC interview. Morgan. Scott, thank you. And Larry Culp, thanks for being with us today as you do wrap up the presentations from Investor Day this morning. Uh, I want to jump right into it. Reiterated guidance for 2022. I mean, we've seen so many macro uncertainties, whether it's supply chain, whether it's inflation, whether it's geopolitics. What gives you confidence to maintain that? Morgan, good afternoon, and thanks for having me. We've had a great day so far with nearly 50 investors with us here in Greenville, South Carolina. We did reaffirm our guidance for the full year, the guidance we issued in late January. Our confidence is really born, Morgan, of the fact that this team is a resilient team. We've got a lot of momentum, both in terms of our core operations. We've got investors out right now visiting two of our plants to see our lean transformation in action. And by the same token, we've got tremendous tailwinds in a number of our businesses, particularly in aviation, where we increased our outlook for our aftermarket business this year. We know we've got supply chain issues to work through in healthcare, but we're doing that. So we, we certainly could do without the headlines of the last couple of weeks. But over the last two years, this team has built a lot of capability, certainly demonstrated an abundance of resilience. We think that continues through the course of 2022, given what we know today. Yeah. And I want to dig into that a little bit more, but first, given the fact that we have had these headlines in the last couple of weeks, this conflict that's playing out in Eastern Europe right now, how is it in fact, uh, impacting the GE portfolio? 
since in addition to having operations in the region, and I know some of those operations in Russia specifically were frozen or, or halted earlier this week by the company, on the one hand, you have a very significant defense book. On the other hand, you also have this commercial aviation business that could potentially be impacted by supply availability or high fuel prices. How are you navigating that? Morgan, what we shared with our guests today is that first and foremost, we stand and we stand proudly with the Ukrainian people at a, at a moment of great duress given these unrelenting attacks. We also underscore the importance of the safety of our team, both in Ukraine and in Russia and throughout the region. We're doing all we can to support them. We have taken two definitive actions. One, the suspension of most of our activity in Russia, the, uh, the major exception there being our healthcare business, which is, of course, serving the, uh, the greater population. We've also indicated that we're donating four and a half million dollars of critical care capabilities to help those uh, under pressure in Ukraine. But as we look forward, it's really too early to tell with respect to how this is all going to play out. We indicated that GE, like so many companies, are facing increased uncertainty given what's happened over the last several weeks. We don't have a better crystal ball than anyone else. But we do think that as we work forward, as we learn more, as knock-on effects become more certain, we'll certainly share that with the market. But today was not the day for us to do that. Understood. Uh, and certainly those are the types of comments I've been hearing from a, a number of companies across industries in recent days, understandably so. Um, the outlook for aviation in general, given the fact that we are emerging from this pandemic uh, and we are starting to see a recovery in air travel. Morgan, John Slattery, the aviation CEO and his team spent the better part of an hour on stage earlier, I think giving a rather full-throated uh, endorsement of a strong post-COVID recovery for the industry, both in terms of the utilization of the existing fleet and the, uh, the ramp in production at both of our major airframer partners. So there, there's a lot that we need to do mm. both here in 22 and as we think about the next several years. But uh, whether it's talking to airline CEOs, whether it's talking to our airframers and others, I think many people are quite optimistic at this point with respect to the demand for air travel. Yeah. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the plans to spin out those businesses. This is a longer term plan. It starts with healthcare spinning out next year. Uh, and then we see it with renewables and aviation beyond that. Is that still the game plan? Or given the fact that we did see a piece of that power portfolio, a deal struck for that to be sold just a couple of weeks ago, are there other options on the table for this to potentially happen sooner? Morgan, I think the, the plan of record that we announced in early November with respect to a two-stage process by which we spin healthcare early next year, as you indicated, and then approximately a year thereafter spin our renewable and power business remains intact. And part of what was so fun today was to give investors who haven't seen these three leadership teams uh, together on one stage in person the opportunity to do so. I think Pete Arduini our relatively new CEO at Healthcare. He and his team did a phenomenal job outlining the various vectors of growth that we have in front of us, particularly aimed at precision health. So there's nothing that we see today that will, will take us off that, that plan. Uh, Pete and the team highlighted a bit for our guests today all the work that's underway to make sure that they're ready to be an independent investment grade industry leader early next year. So we're, we're pleased with the progress. We're pleased with the reaction we've gotten. 
from so many customers, investors, and certainly employees with respect to the plan. A lot of work to do, but we're on our way. Larry, we appreciate you joining us today as you do have this in-person investor day down in Greenville, South Carolina. I should also just note, uh, coming on the heels of announcing a $3 billion share repurchase plan earlier this week as well. Uh, Thanks for being with us. Larry Culp, CEO and Chairman of GE. Scott. All right, Morgan, thanks. Our thanks to Mr. Culp as well. Let's get to that Amazon story now. The shares are higher, as you've seen. The company announces a 20-for-1 stock split, a $10 billion buyback as well. We've talked about this issue for more than a year, right, when Andy Jassy, guys, was first named as Jeff Bezos' successor. Again, just ahead of him taking control of the company. Let's look. However, is it possible that one of Jassy's most significant moves early on could be splitting the stock and opening it up to a whole new crop of investors. I'm not necessarily sure that that's needed. Maybe if he does, okay, that's viewed as a good thing. But but I don't I don't think that's that's the ultimate referendum. I think the stock split, while ludicrous, it, it would definitely juice the price of of the shares. We saw that with Tesla last August. Uh, with no fundamental change at all, it pretty much doubled. Why, wait, wait, so, wait, 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 wait. Why do you say ludicrous? What, give, me your, give me your point of view on, on that. It, Why do you say because, ludicrous? Because, because it doesn't change anything fundamentally about the company. It just creates excitement. And, uh, again, if you're a shareholder, what do you care? If it's ludicrous or not, your stock price goes up. So I'm, just, I'm, I'm speaking about the reality of doing a stock split. It really doesn't change anything about the company but it definitely changes psychology among investors in the short term, and it does create artificial excitement. I mean, here we are. They made the announcement. <laughs> Had to figure it was just a matter of time. Josh, by the way, companies that split their stock are generally 25% higher a year later. That's according to some Bank of America data since 1980. Doesn't fundamentally change the pie, so to speak, today. But it does open you up to a whole new class of shareholders, potentially, doesn't it? Yeah. So I was so young and and foolish back then. How how many years ago was that? (laughs) Do we know? Uh, I don't know. It was like six months. No, everything I said is everything I said is true. Amazon is Amazon fundamentally is the same company as it was yesterday, but it creates this artificial buzz in the market. People are excited about it. I'm actually evolving my view on this. I, I, I historically have had this Buffett-esque kind of highbrow view, like how dare they think the stock is worth more if I give them smaller pieces of the same. You know what? I'm an idiot. The truth is, why do you think when when company that sells KitKat all of a sudden says, now you could buy eight sticks instead of four, but the sticks are half the size, um, but we're going to charge you a dollar more for it. People are into that. People like the flexibility of buying more of something, even if you shrink it. So, uh, and by the way, uh, you throw a, a kid's birthday party, you make the slices 16 instead of eight, and I end up eating like four more slices than I normally would. Like, because I'm as susceptible as anyone else. So, I, uh, shut up, Pete, shut up. So listen. Sorry. What, Stay so on what, message. I guess my bottom, let me, let me bottom line this. Let me bottom line this. I am, it's good. I'm long the stock. I like that it's up. I really don't care if it's because they, they did a magic trick. In the end, though, people do like stock splits. They will buy in advance of a stock split. We saw it have a material impact on Tesla. 
on Apple. I was around in 99. Amazon did two stock splits that year. I swear to God, they did two in one year. That's how much people love stock splits. Is that a reason to buy Amazon? Not really, but is it a reason why it's up and might stay up? Okay, I'll accept that. I'll take it. I'm evolving. We all have room to grow. So if you look, Pete, at the performance, look, let's just say NVIDIA yeah. for in, NVIDIA uh, announced a four for one stock split on May 21st of 2021, up 46 percent since then versus a Nasdaq that's down four percent. Tesla did its five for one on August 11th of 2020. The stock's up near 200 yeah. percent since then. Nasdaq's up 20. Uh, Apple did its four for one split on July 30th of 2020. The stock's up 63% since then versus a NASDAQ up 2022. 20, I gave you the stats from Bank of America. Uh, what seems like the same pie today maybe creates a larger pie tomorrow. Well, it does. I mean, and, and, and you know, I'm not denigrating what you're talking about, uh, Josh, when you say I was an idiot and this, that and the other. I would say this, though. It creates opportunity, Scott. People who weren't able to get to Amazon now will be able to. It opens up something and clearly, I mean, all you've got to do is look at the facts and the facts are what you just put out there. Take a look at Tesla, take a look at Nvidia, take a look at these stocks when what they make these What about fractional splits, share ownership though? Yeah, but that that's not what people want. People want to be able to have something that has some affordability. And you got to remember this uh, when you're looking at this, Josh, it's also about the derivatives markets. And what do I mean by that? Well, it opens up the derivative markets. Now something that was a $50 option that somebody probably can't trade is now giving them an opportunity to buy it at a much less lesser cost gives them an opportunity to be there as well. And along the way, you can hedge on the downside or you can do something for the upside. So I think the derivatives markets do play a piece of what's going on here as well. And I think Tesla is the greatest example of all because you said it, there wasn't anything necessarily material that had changed, but by doing that split, just take a look at what that stock did. And I think it creates the opportunity for people that wanna buy 10 shares, 100 shares, whatever. Um, it gives them that opportunity. And I think you, no matter how you slice it, <laughs> those pieces of the cake, that is what people are looking for is opportunity. They wanna be in Amazon. They can't trade it. They can do these fractional things, but it feels meaningless. This is a much different trade when you're able to buy 10, 50, 100 shares. I, and mentally, that gives people that sort of an advantage, I think. Bill, very well said. Very well said, Pete. Rob Seachin. I'm still an idiot. Okay, I haven't pivoted. Democratization is great uh, for stocks, but as Pete said, there's still other ways other ways to own it. It all comes down to what, what the fundamentals of the business are, which more important here to me is the share buyback. And, you know, about a year ago, we, we, we cut our position in Amazon from a significant it's overweight tiny. to a to, to, a, to a tiny uh, underweight, actually. And, you know, when we look at it, the S&P's up by a half a percent since then, and Amazon's down 10. Everything we do is based on fundamentals. The viewers should do it exactly the same way. There's some hyperbole and excitement that's created by stock splits, but we all know that fundamentally that does not change anything as it relates to the company. Share buybacks, financial engineering, that does. So. You know, I, I tend to be where Josh was. All right. Well, 10 billion share buyback on 1.6 trillion is, so, yeah. is it's uh, Paul. My, it's small. I would say, like, if you're going to do it, Jassy, do I it. I agree. 
And yeah. may, look, okay. and maybe this is the may, maybe more is, is is coming, right? You have to believe that this is not going, going to be the first. Jenny, I need a comment from you. Then I got to bounce. Okay, thanks. I think there's a bigger picture story here that's really important, which is when Apple, Nvidia, Tesla did their sh their um stock splits. Those shares were up a ton, right? Five percent. This is not a big move, and I think that what we need to look at here is that. It's a not a big move because we're in a very different environment. And so we shouldn't pretend that we're in the same environment that we were in a year ago and two years ago and three years ago. If all we can get out of Amazon on a 20 for one share split is a 5% move, this does not bode well for the big, huge, you know, 100% gains that we had in the past years. One thing on the share buyback, that's lovely, but it's also 0.66% of shares outstanding. That's minuscule. It's kind of meaningless. It is. It's a nice... Yeah, it's minuscule. It's yeah. a nice little like, hey, but you know, Foot Locker that I bought the other day, they said they'd authorized a billion to share buyback. That's on a $3 billion market cap. So don't treat all share buybacks equal. Like be aware of how much right. economic reality there really is when you hear about that. All right. Energy prices on the rise again. Joining us next for the very first time here, Osprey Management founder Dwight Anderson. He specializes in commodities investing. He's going to give you some actionable ideas in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. The mask mandate on airplanes and other forms of mass transit is set to ease next month. The CDC is extending the current rules until April 18th, but it's also reportedly developing guidelines to relax mask regulations based on local COVID levels. Russian forces in Ukraine are operating with, quote, reckless disregard for civilians. That's what the top U.S. intelligence official is telling the Senate. She says that U.S. intelligence agencies are working to document and hold Russia and Russian actors accountable for their actions. Some movement now in talks to end Major League Baseball's lockout that is now in its 99th day. Owners and players have agreed to negotiate on a draft for international players. Talks locked down on this topic yesterday. And on the news tonight, a new series letting people speak in their own words. It starts with a violinist in Ukraine playing to give people a brief break from the war. War That's tonight at 7 Eastern. Scott, I'll send it back to you. Appreciate it very much. Rahel Solomon, thank you. 
Goldman Sachs becoming the very first Wall Street firm to pull out of Russia, with the firm saying it will wind down its business there. Goldman says its credit exposure to Russia was $650 million at the end of last year, most of which was tied to non-sovereign counterparties. But it is another story about Russia exposure grabbing our attention today. Our Leslie Picker confirming a story first reported by the FT. PIMCO facing big losses through its exposure to sovereign debt and credit default swaps. Our Leslie Picker is following the money for us, and she joins us now on the phone. Les, I know you're busy, and I appreciate you making time for us. We're talking about two fronts here, potentially losing money to the tune of $2.5 billion. What do we know? So there are a lot of moving pieces here, and I think we'll have a lot more answers over the course of the week. But what we do know right now is how PIMCO is positioned relative to Russia. So they have kind of this dual-edged sword right now as it pertains to Russia in the sense that they have a $1.5 billion wager tied to the actual government bonds of Russia. But then they also have written contracts relative to the CDS of Russia, meaning they would be the ones to pay out their counterparties if Russia were to default to the tune of about a billion dollars, perhaps a little more than a billion dollars on that front. Now, the key question here is we don't know what next week brings. That is when a debt payment is due. The first one amid this whole conflict and sanctions and so forth is due on March 16th. Putin has said that he would be he would permit corporates to pay in rubles. But, of course, the value of the ruble is rapidly depreciating. We don't know if they're going to actually be able to, given the sanctions that are in place right now, pay out. And the question is, does that trigger those CDS? Does that account to a default? And then the question that everyone's asking is kind of taking a look a few steps forward. What does that mean for a restructuring process? Because we've never actually seen a restructuring process take place on a sanctioned government like we're experiencing right now. So a lot of historic, unprecedented situations at play. So a couple of things. Um, Obviously, two and a half billion dollars of a potential underscoring the word potential loss is not uh, an insignificant amount of money. But when it's put towards two trillion dollars plus in assets, it sort of puts into perspective exactly what we're talking about. Do we know how PIMCO is already viewing uh, the, these assets and, and whether it is it is marking the bonds to zero now or not? How, how should we think about this in terms of the way that they're specifically doing it? No, it's a great question. So they have they obviously mark Uh, to market their funds on a daily basis to account for the various moves in these markets. And with the Russian bonds trading around 20 cents on the dollars, they have been marking their funds accordingly. So it's unclear exactly how much their losses will be at the end of all of this. Given the markings, that's something that we don't know exactly. That's not in the public domain. That's not something that my sources uh, were able to tell me. But we do know that the funds themselves have seen outflows. Um, They've you know, showed some negative performance in light of all of this. But to your point, $2 trillion fund, this is a very minuscule fractional amount of the overall assets that they oversee that we could be talking about, even in the worst case scenario in terms of losses related to Russia. That said, it certainly, um, you know, begs the question whether they would continue to invest in Russia after a, a default. I, I have a hard time believing that would be the case given just the structure of their fund. I, I, I don't believe it's set up to really 
invest at least heavily in, in distressed um, in distressed or, or yeah. defaulted assets. It, it, it certainly does make you think about, you know, more broadly, oh, are there other PIMCOs, so to speak, uh, out there? And, and that, frankly, at this point remains to be seen. Les, I appreciate it so much. I know you'll be following that money and you'll let us know uh, whatever you find. That's Leslie Picker. And by the way, I mean, it's not just PIMCO and we're not talking about a, a massive amount either of, of exposure or, or losses for a lot of other funds. However, as of a few weeks ago, I'll tell you about a few. American Funds Emerging Market Bond Fund had 6% of its assets in Russia. It's down 10% since the invasion started. T. Rowe Price's PRELX and Fidelity's Emerging Market Bond Fund, similar exposure, and both are down about 8% since this all started. All three yield in the 5% range. So you can see on the chart there, we tried to give you some other examples uh, to see maybe where the opportunity lies and certainly where the risk is. When we come back, up next, Osprey Management founder Dwight Anderson. Again, he specializes in commodities, investing, actionable ideas from him, where to put your money to work in that space, and that's next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close? or travel somewhere far away. At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back. Oil prices rising today following the worst day since November. Commodities remain volatile, likely will for the foreseeable future. Our next guest runs a hedge fund specializing in commodities investing. Dwight Anderson, the founder of Osprey Management, joins us now. Welcome to our show. It's great to have you on. Scott, appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me here. I mean, this is your wheelhouse. Uh, Truly is. Now's your moment. Uh, How are you taking advantage of it? Well, both taking advantage, but also worried about it, Scott. Um, Coming into this year, we're already worried about food pricing and agricultural prices. You had very tight balance sheets, and we needed to make a really good crop down in South America because our winter is their growing season. And unfortunately, even before the events in Ukraine, you'd had bad weather. So we had lost 15 million tons of the expected production we had for crops down there. Um, and now with Ukraine, we're looking at potentially not just food price inflation continuing. You're already at 40-year highs in terms of those prices. But with a stocks-to-use ratio at 20-year lows outside of China, um, if the... Ukrainian farmers don't get on their tractors. That's 100 million tons of food that's not going to be grown. So we're not just concerned about food inflation and prices continuing. We're actually worried about food availability and shortages, especially in the developing world as this year progresses. Surely, uh, and rightfully so. Um, the, the way that you see the opportunity today in the market, because you answered my first question with such a heavy focus on grain, is, is that where you are looking for the most alpha right now in, in what is a horrible situation over there? Sure, I would say that there's a, a couple different ways to play it. The, the simplistic way to play it is just the crop that's really going to benefit from it that hasn't really moved here. 
something like, you know, July soybeans, where, you know, just in order to ration demand on the existing balance sheet, they probably need to be 20% higher. But the other aspect that's a development, both of the phenomenal low crop profitability, but also other events that have interrupted supply are the fertilizer stocks. So there's a, the cheapest farmland and farming company in the world is trading on the New York Stock Exchange in Deco Agro at, you know, more than a 15% free cash flow yield. But a company like Mosaic is structurally positioned to benefit for years to come, and it's trading at under four times EVD EBITDA. I mean, the stock traded well over $80 11 years ago, traded over 150 back in 2008. And so that aspect of whether it's the absolute grains and row crops or the farming equities like at Adeco Agro or the fertilizer stocks like the Mosaic, those are the ones that are structurally positioned to benefit from this. I'm assuming that you, you have positions in both, and that's why you specifically mentioned uh, those names. Um, that's a safe to assume, Scott. Yeah. Um, I guess part of my question would also be, um, I would venture to guess that these stocks have had a move already um, relative to the news, clearly. So for, for viewers who are watching our interview now and who aren't in these names, is it OK to initiate positions from here? Yeah, I think take a look at, and I'm dead serious in terms of, you look at the replacement cost to try and actually build what you have from Mosaic. It's something that would justify a price 2x here. I'm not necessarily calling for that, but for a stock to trade at a 20% uh, cash flow, you know, Mosaic is north of $80. So given that we think that there are structural impairments of volumes for fertilizer areas where there isn't as much margin pressure, like the, uh, we had already blocked the volumes of potash coming out of Belarus. And so that aspect of their customers are very profitable and there are real impediments or impairments to supply throughout the board. Um, and they've come up with a very measured and judicious use of cash, both the Deco Agro and Mosaic. So it's companies like that where the shareholder will benefit and there's a sustained period of the cycle. I think there's still probably you know, a sustained period of upside for equities like that. Wow. Uh, where do the best opportunities lie today in the, the energy complex, be it oil, natural gas, uh, EMP, uh, what, what's attractive? So uh, I was talking to one of my smartest friends in the energy world this morning, and he pointed out, you've had record under, underperformance of the oil and gas EMPs relative to the oil service. Um, we think that there's a real structural risk to the upside of natural gas prices here over the upcoming two years, something like a dollar downside, you know, and more than doubling, you know, or five plus dollars to the upside. So the U.S. EMPs have really just become just structurally way too cheap, where a company like a Civitas Resources or a Diamondback Energy, all trading five to six times earnings, you know, two to four times EBITDA, some with good dividend yields, returning capital. It's the EMPs that relative to their valuation and sort of the sustained performance of crude and natural gas prices that I think really offer a really interesting opportunity here. We, we had Mark Fisher on with us yesterday, uh, obviously one of the, the best oil traders uh, of all time. He said to me that the best risk reward trade on the board right now is being long this winter's natural gas. Represents to him hands down uh, the best risk reward. You see it similarly? Yeah, you take a look at something like a March natural gas contract, which is somewhere around $4.50. Yes. Could you have a dollar downside? But you easily could see that trading over $10. And so the skew of outcomes, given where the inventories are, the demand, impediments on pipeline supply, um, it, it offers a really great probability and skew for risk return. I really appreciate you coming on today. 
Uh, we've had a lot of things to juggle. I appreciate your patience. I know we'll have a conversation again. Uh, but Dwight, oh, I sincerely doing. appreciate you being here. Thank that, you, Scott. That's Osprey's Dwight Anderson joining us for the first time and hopefully not the last. Pete's latest unusual activity is next. Stocks are down. Dow's down 400. We're back right after this. A reminder, starting Monday, 4 p.m. Eastern, I hope you'll join me for the premiere of Closing Bell Overtime. The bell may ring. Action, though, it doesn't stop. And you can expect all of the late-breaking news and after-hours action, plus the same type of actionable ideas you get right here on The Half. We have a big lineup next week to kick things off. Brad Gerstner joins me. Jeffrey Gundlach will be with us on Fed Decision Day. That hasn't happened. Very much looking forward to Ricky Sandler and Mark Lazary, Nancy Davis rounding out our big first week. You'll see some familiar faces. You'll see some new ones. Closing bell overtime, 4 o'clock on Monday, five days a week. Can't wait to be with all of you then. Let's talk shares of CrowdStrike. They're surging after the strong beat on earnings. Josh, you mentioned it at the top of the show. 14% now. Yeah, listen, uh, if this were a normal market environment, this stock would be plus, would be 250 plus, but it's not. And these stocks just cannot keep or sustain a bid. So I'm happy to see it. I'm long. I'm a long-term investor. If it fades tomorrow, it really won't change my opinion. This company's results and fundamentals are what, are what are important. And there are very few companies I can think of that are hitting it the way this company is right now. So um, great news. Happy to see it. Congrats to uh, George Kurtz and the team. Yep. Um, Pete, why don't you do unusual for us? All right, I'm going to give you my very first one is going to be energy fuels. Now, we've been talking about uranium for a little while now, Scott. They continue to move to the upside. We got CCJ, you got URA. We had even more of the ETF for uranium hitting today as well. But the July 12 calls are what they were buying, about 4,000 of those for about a, about a buck 75 or so. Secondly, I've got a pretty interesting one. I teased it already. But EEM, we're looking at the June 41 puts. Pretty aggressively getting bought there as well, Scott. About 5,000 of those trading for about $1.80. So some pretty interesting trades and i'm looking i continue to see these puts in all these etfs outside the united states i hear you hey why don't you give me a final trade pete while i got you yep oh man you know how i love this energy trade i saw some rig trading as well so i'm going to go with transocean i think it's going higher okay thanks for that rob seachin yep. american express it's down a lot trades at 17 times next year is in 10 percent free cash flow plus it's leveraged the reopening quite a bit okay jenny Umpqua. It's a regional bank in the Pacific Northwest. I spoke to the management this morning and reconfirmed that, in fact, rising interest rates are good for their business. Meanwhile, it trades at 11 times earnings with a 4.2% dividend yield. Okay. Josh Brown. Uh, sticking with Amazon. Yeah. Well, well we're going to see what happens. I'm curious as to why, you know, no one owns the ag names that, that Dwight talked about, uh, I don't think. Uh, and energy. I bought CF. You bought CF? Mm -hmm. Pete? I bought CF today. Yes, we had some CF op options hitting today. I bought that today. Yeah, I think your brother has been in some of the grain-related um, stocks, too. Yep. We and you know I've been long energy since long yeah. before it was popular. I'm sorry, everybody. Was That sounded like a word salad. Everybody's talking over everybody. Rob, what'd you say? I said we own a lot of the E&P names, the XOPs, and then some of the gas names, too, EOG. Those were two of my top picks coming into the year with you guys. So. Jenny, you got less than 10 seconds. We've been at long energy for a long time. Yeah. Well, it's been a favorite sector for a good reason. Thanks, everybody. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC.
we could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you.